friends and enemies, welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 16 of the series The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. Wampus Frolic promises to set West Coast on its ear reported Moving Picture World on February 5, 1927. The sixth annual Wampus Frolic and Ball was held on February 17th, a Thursday, at the Ambassador Ballroom, with Master of Ceremonies Fred Niblo and, as usual, a wide array of special entertainments, one of which, reported in Screenland, struck me as something I would have found particularly boring to watch. Doug Fairbanks played a set of that fast-moving game, Doug, an invention of his own, which is a cross between tennis and battledore. Doug and his three fellow players kept the audience laughing or applauding by their footwork. Imagine being that big a movie star that you can force a whole audience just to watch you play a made-up game you named after yourself. Good lord. In slightly more interesting news, one of the Wampus baby stars, Ada Mae Vaughn, fainted on stage. She was okay! And some enterprising individuals sold 1,000 counterfeit tickets to the event. Pandemonium! Somehow, they found time to introduce all of the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers baby stars of 1927. They were Patricia Avery, Rita Carew, Helen Costello, Barbara Kent, Natalie Kingston, Frances Lee, Mary McAllister, Gladys McConnell, Sally Phipps, Sally Rand, Martha Sleeper, Iris Stewart, and the fainter Ada Mae Vaughan. A less promising and less inspiring group of girls could hardly have been chosen, said Pitcher Play. Hmm. Well, let's see for ourselves. Iris Stewart Two hands and a face, as the headline photoplay chose to introduce its readers to Iris Stewart in 1926. She had been a hand model, so you understand their choice of words. Born as Frances McCann in February 1903, she had had a career as a model, not exclusively with her hands, her face too, as the photoplay piece tells us. She was quite successful, both in advertising jewelry and as an artist's model. She became known as the girl with the perfect hands and as the girl with a million faces. Given how often film producers were hunting for new, beautiful faces to have on contract, it's almost a wonder that it took until 1926 for Iris to get the attention of B.P. Schulberg. I am instinctively wary of anyone getting professionally involved with old B.P. because of his singular focus. In 1926, he was very much all about Clara Bow. But it was okay, because really he just brought Iris into the Paramount fold. Iris made her film debut in Stranded in Paris, starring Bebe Daniels. 
It was reportedly a second lead, but the review in Moving Picture World I read of the now-lost film made no special mention of her, choosing instead to mention a poodle that contributes not a little of the fun. Still, Paramount was happy enough with her and put her straight to work in small roles in three other films released shortly after being named a baby star in 1927. Casey at the Bat with Wallace Beery, Children of Divorce with Clara Bow and Gary Cooper, and Wedding Bills, which appears to have been about a pigeon who is also a thief. So things were happening for Iris in early 1927, but sadly, it wasn't to be. A sad aftermath to the selection of the baby stars is the news that Iris Stewart, one of their numbers, will have to retire from the screen for a long time at least, as she is threatened with a complete nervous breakdown, reported Screenland. Miss Stewart got up out of bed to appear at the Wampus Ball. Physicians at Famous Players Lasky, where she is under contract, have advised an immediate retirement to a sanitarium, where she can rest and build up for her return to the screen. Although the reporting frequently alludes to her mental health, which may well have been a factor, it appears that Iris was also suffering from tuberculosis. Poor Iris was ordered by her doctors to rest for the foreseeable, and she was away from Hollywood until the end of the year. When she returned, she did have a few hopeful meetings with Paramount, a.k.a. Famous Players, resigning with them. Paramount tried getting her name back out there. Remember Iris Stewart. She's back in Hollywood and more beautiful than ever. But before they could put her in any productions, Iris eloped and decided to not keep working. Iris Stewart's is a tragic story said Movie Mirror's 1932 piece, What Becomes of Baby Stars. Iris was very beautiful, so beautiful that nothing, it seemed, could stop her. But something did. Her health broke down, and Iris was forced to go into the desert country to live, leaving behind all hope of fame, all hope of the success which might have been hers. They conveniently left out the fact that she did return to Hollywood and left of her own accord, and they weren't to know that the real tragedy is not that she only made four movies, but that she would pass away in 1936, at just 33, from a return of her TB. The Wampus, of course, were incorrect in their predictions. But how were they to know what was to come? Ada May Vaughn. Wampus Baby Star of 1924, Alberta Vaughn, aka the Telephone Girl, was followed into filmdom by her younger sister Ada May. Sometimes that's Ada space May, sometimes it's all one word. Well, more accurately, they arrived together, not much following involved, in 1921. Born in 1905, Ada May was only a year younger than her sister, but it would take her three years to land on the coveted Wampus list. You see, whereas Alberta was really hustling, appearing in as many comedy shorts as she possibly could, and eventually landing a well-received and popular serial, Ada May spent most of her time working as an extra, taking on the 
occasional very small role, and acting as a chaperone and business manager for her more successful sister. In February 1926, Ada May signed a contract with FBO, the same studio as Alberta. Before this, she was mentioned occasionally in pieces about her sister, sometimes with the subtext that it was a wonder that Alberta, who was rather quirky in her appearance, was the actress in the family, and not Ada May. Screenland, for example, mentions Alberta's beautiful golden pink and white sister Ada May, promising to tell readers about her some other time. With the FBO contract, it seems like Ada May finally decided to see if the spotlight was right for her after all. She did two films with them that year, The Arizona Streak, a western with Tom Mix, and the action-adventure film Flashing Fangs, opposite Ranger the Dog. Her reviews were perfectly fine. Ada May Vaughn wins instant favor as the pert and pretty heroine, said the Exhibitor's Herald about her role in the Arizona streak. According to Screenland, Alberta advocated for her sister's inclusion on the list, sending out cigars to the Wampus members to sweeten them up. The cigars, Ada May's family connection, she wasn't the first sister of a previous Wampus baby to land on the list, she's not even the only sister on the list this episode. And her appearance in those two features was enough for the 1927 list, but perhaps the Wampus should have tempered their expectations. As Pitcher Play put it in their April 1927 issue, Ada Mae Vaughn is Alberta's sister, but is more of a sedate type than vivacious Alberta. No wonder she fainted at the Wampus frolic that year. Christ on a cracker, nobody wants a sedate type. And really, no one did. Ada May didn't make another film for two whole more years. She made a little news outside of the Baby Stars coverage when she called off her divorce and then called it back on again, but otherwise, crickets. Ada May was back on screen in 1929's Show of Shows, appearing in a dance number with Alberta, featuring an assortment of sister actresses called Meet My Sister. And she was in the gossip pages a bit when she announced her engagement to a Viscount, and when she got some work done. She's mentioned briefly in the Flesh and Blood Racket article all about plastic surgery of the stars. Apparently the tip of her nose was deemed too deep, whatever the hell that means. But career-wise, at least as a performer, things were pretty, pretty quiet. In 1930, she had one final credited role, then it was back to the very occasional bit of background work. Perhaps she should have stayed behind the scenes after all. In 1934, Ada May married her Viscount after quite a long engagement, though they later divorced. Ada May struggled with her health, starting with complications from abdominal surgery that she had in the late 1930s. Then she passed away in 1943 at just 37. It's easy to look at her short life as one spent in her sister's shadow. But I think that Ada May preferred it there. And certainly, Alberta benefited from her steady influence. They were always close, and without her sister, Alberta struggled a lot in later life. But ultimately, no, the Wampas simply weren't right about Ada May Vaughn. 
Natalie Kingston. Californian-born Natalie Kingston, original surname Ringstrom, was around 19 when she joined Max Sennett's comedy productions in 1924, after having appeared in Broadway productions as a dancer for around four years already. Born into an influential family, Screenland reported that she had run away from a Dominican convent before becoming a dancer. Smiles, chuckles, giggles, laughs, promised an ad for Senate's studio featuring a small picture of Natalie looking decidedly ungiggly. Her look at this time was a straight bob, just past her ears, parted in the middle with one curl direct center of her forehead. I mention this mainly because it does look a little unusual. I suspect it's an attempt to make the newly popular sleek flappers bob a little different for a comedy player. But also, I like my own hair in a bob and have woken up with a rogue bit of fringe trying to commit the same crime against me. Natalie seemed to like it. Throughout 1925 and 1926, she appeared in numerous comedy shorts, not getting much attention on her own. She was no Alberta Vaughn either. But a welcome sight to audiences, as she was pretty and charming. Still, as is often the case, Natalie wanted more. She signed with First National in the summer of 1926, as reported by the Motion Picture News trade paper, they had her curl her hair, but the wayward forehead lock remained. Towards the end of the year, after some featured supporting roles, Natalie had her first opportunity to play leading lady to the star Milton Sills in The Silent Lover. It wasn't anything to write home about, and Natalie didn't get any special notice in the reviews, mainly because when they did want to mention one of the women in the film, it was Viola Dana, who apparently appeared mostly nude. So, it wasn't necessarily any of her specific, already-released projects that got Natalie any special attention in the Wampus Clubhouse, but her contract, her often-revealing publicity photos, not mostly nude, but frolicking on the beach or in a bubble bath, sure, and her films ready to be released in 1927 that sealed the deal and got her on the Wampus list. Natalie was very busy in the next year, being loaned out for a variety of featured supporting roles like The Night of Love starring Ronald Coleman and Wilma Banquet, and as a leading lady at her home studio, including being paired with Milton Sills again in Framed. She did get special notice in this one, but not for the right reasons. Natalie Kingston in a blonde wig goes through her insipid role looking like a flaxen-haired department store dummy, wrote the reviewer for the New York Daily News. But that's not nice. But hey, we've all seen performances that would kind of fit that description. Luckily for Natalie, the best was ahead of her. In early 1928, she landed the leading lady role in Universal's epic film serial Tarzan the Mighty. Tarzan's sweetheart was selected last week, announced the Universal Weekly in May. Natalie Kingston, famous bathing girl, was the unanimous choice for the lead opposite Frank Merrill in Tarzan the Mighty. Others are Al Ferguson and Monty Montague. She played Mary, there, there was no Jane. Originally planned in 12 parts, its immense popularity meant that it was expanded to three more episodes, and it was wonderful for Natalie's profile. 
even if one review kept calling her Estelle. Oh well. I mentioned before that one of the things about Natalie that caught the interest of the Wampus fellas is that she had a very uninhibited way about her in publicity photos. This, of course, expanded into her film costumes. Many of the print ads for Tarzan the Mighty didn't feature Tarzan at all, but instead show Natalie in a two-piece leopard print skirt and tube top outfit, bending over backwards with one arm above her head. Very Natalie attired, read the headline in a two-page spread in Motion Pictures' November 1928 issue. Miss Kingston's costume is always brief and to the point. Beyond her clothing or lack thereof, the fan magazines struggled to find a hook with Natalie, and she didn't really aid them in finding one. She got married in 1928, and though she continued to work, including doing a sequel series, Tarzan the Tiger, in 1929, Natalie's focus was no longer on trying to be a star, but rather on her marriage. Natalie made her final film in 1933, so she never reached stardom. But hey, by then, she had finally fixed her bangs. Helen Costello I told you we had another sister this year. Helen Costello's older sister was Dolores Costello, Wampus Baby Star of 1926. Unlike Ada Mae Vaughan, though, Helen brought a little more legitimacy to her inclusion. Born in June 1906, she was just a little girl when she and Dolores began appearing in their father Maurice Costello's films circa 1909. Later on, Dolores was often referred to as the younger of the pair, but it was definitely Helen, which is supported by both the 1910 and 1920 censuses. Helen appeared in a bunch of shorts as a child, and then began appearing on vaudeville alongside her sister as teenagers. In 1925, both of them were signed with Warner Brothers. Helen Costello, daughter of the old-time favorite Maurice Costello, makes her film debut as Sid's sister, said a review of The Man on the Box, starring Sid Chaplin. She is very beautiful, and her screen success is hereby predicted. Well, never mind that it wasn't actually her debut. The sentiment surrounding her appearance stands. Both Costello sisters were beautiful and sure to be stars. Most of her early coverage is indeed coverage of both sisters. The Costello Girls photoplay captioned a picture of the two in 1925. Dolores, who is a blonde, and Helene, a brunette, they are the daughters of Maurice Costello, old Vitagraph star who is still in pictures. The girls have recently signed a Warner Brothers contract. Dolores will be John Barrymore's leading lady. Go back and listen to episode 11 to learn just how true that turned out to be. Jack Barrymore's selection of Dolores to play opposite spelt a divergence in the sisters' careers. Where Dolores was fast-tracked into dramatic leading roles, Warners primarily put Helen in B-grade films in supporting roles mostly comedies with the occasional western or adventure film. In the June 1926 issue, Motion Picture Magazine called her the Unknown Sister in relation to Dolores' rapid rise to fame, but by the August edition they conceded 
Helen Costello is coming along now with flying colors. Dolores's brilliant rise put her in the background for a short time, but Hollywood prophecies equally interesting things for her. With an important human role in the third Rin Tin Tin movie of 1926, When London Sleeps, Helen really was coming along with flying colors. But the shadow of her famous family, again, especially her sister, loomed over her. Picture Play recounted a funny story of how, upon seeing her name written on the back of her canvas chair on set, visitors to the Warner's lot kept coming up to Helen and asking, Oh, are you Dolores Costello's sister? Oh, are you related to Maurice Costello, the actor? Finally, one day, Helen grew tired of these questions. She went to the studio art department and had a special sign painted and hung it over the back of her chair. It read as follows. Helen Costello. Yes, Helen. I am Dolores Costello's sister and Maurice Costello's daughter. For any further information regarding me, please see the director of this picture, the publicity department, or else send me a fan letter. I surely need one. Helen was surely excited to be recognized on her own merit when she was named a Wampus Baby star shortly afterwards. Pitcher Play gave her a bit of a backhanded compliment when discussing that year's batch, pointing out that she was one of the best of the bunch, having distinguished herself in bad pictures. 1927 was a busy year, although it's hard to argue that the prestige of projects Helen was being given improved wrote Pitcher Play again. Helen Costello is rising steadily to screen prominence. Her forte is light comedy, which doesn't give her the opportunity for big specials such as Dolores has had. That same year, Helen was in the press for a rumored relationship with 17-year-old Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and then for her first marriage to a much older businessman-slash-football player John Reagan. It was her first marriage of four. Marrying may have given her a sheen of maturity, as in the latter half of the year, Helen was given some more sophisticated roles to take on, but the films still weren't very good. There is little that can be recommended in this Warner Brothers feature, which has Owen Moore and Helen Costello in the leading roles, says Motion Picture News about Husbands for Rent, 1927. Its alleged comedy is of the crudest, its plot is slim and moves along at a snail's pace, and there is none of the necessary element of suspense. It has one daring touch, which goes a little bit beyond the border of the risque, but otherwise it is without incident. And what about Helene specifically? Helene Costello, it would seem, would fit better into the role of Moore's wife instead of the flighty, indiscreet, cigarette-smoking vamp type which she depicts. The following year, though Helen was still under contract to Warner Brothers, they were loaning her out more and more to other lesser studios. She did appear in Lights of New York, 1928, which is notable for being the first all-talking feature-length film. Warner Brothers used Vitaphone, a synchronized sound system where a record played alongside the film reel. Only its value as a novelty can possibly make the film interesting, said a review in the Herald Tribune. 
that is not, as a matter of fact, even valuable as an experiment, for it was so obviously tossed together in a hurry to take advantage of the current fad for talking pictures that it is not really a fair test for the Vitaphone. Lights of New York would have been a bad silent on the Vitaphone, on the movie tone, or on the stage. That said, it was a hit. People love novelty. It didn't help Helen's career very much, and somewhat ironically, she didn't make a smooth transition into sound at all, next only appearing in silence and a featured appearance in that Meet My Sister number in the show of shows, 1929, before dropping off the map in 1930 and being off-screen for the next five years. Her voice not recording super well may have been a factor, but so was her personal life. 1930 coincided with her second marriage, this time to actor Lowell Sherman. In their 1932 divorce proceedings, she called him a ham actor and a fat old man. He said that she was violent and frequently intoxicated, and also that she collected erotic novels. Very scandalous for 1932. Even after her divorce, which had at least kept her name in the fan magazines, although not for very flattering reasons, Helen didn't make a swift return to the screen. By 1935, Dolores had also taken a step back from filmmaking and was in the midst of her own, even higher profile, divorce and comeback. Fighting back to fame, said Pitcher Play in their October 1935 issue. Dolores and Helen Costello are both endeavoring to renew their careers. Dolores took a test for Paramount, and Helen starred in a stage play called The Wilder Beauty. Incidentally, Helen has become the life of the party in Movieland's social world. The life of the party is, unfortunately, code for drinking heavily and using barbiturates. As her comeback failed to impress, and a third marriage crumbled, Helen's life spiraled. She was plagued with health problems and addictions, Otherwise faded into obscurity, a messy custody trial brought her public attention again in 1947 when her fourth husband, seems like a real piece of shit himself, accused her of being an unfit mother to their six-year-old. It was Dolores who ended up as guardian to her little niece. Poor Helen struggled for years. She passed away in 1957, just days after entering a medical facility to treat her narcotics addiction at 50 years old. Helen Costello never did reach the heights predicted by the Wampus, let alone the heights achieved by her own sister. Gladys McConnell In 1924, Gladys McConnell accompanied her older sister Hazel to Universal Studio, where she, Hazel that is, had a screen test. No, this is not another tale of Wampus baby sister pairs. Hazel evidently didn't impress, but Gladys, then around 19, was thrilled with the excitement of the studio. She went back on her own and, showing quite a bit of gumption, strolled right into casting director Fred Dattig's office and told him that as she could ride a horse, he should put her in westerns. On her first visit to a casting director's office at Universal City several years ago, she eagerly set forth her qualifications, but without making any impression wrote Pitcher Play in 1926. She had to go back several times before she obtained a job. Gladys had been schooled to ride in an English saddle, but the horses at Universal were all California horses, 
with rocking chair saddles. The cowboys on the Universal lot thought that they would break the new girl in right, so they didn't tell her the peculiarities of the western saddle. She climbed onto a horse, and for the first five minutes she swathed hither and yon, and was several times almost bounced off. But after her first initiation she made good with a flourish, and now numbers those cowboys among her very particular admirers. The cowboys may have been her admirers, but if Fred did put her in any universal westerns, it must have been in background roles that are now lost to history. In 1926, Gladys was signed by Fox Studios, which is where evidence actually exists that she appeared on screen. They quickly put her to work, and she appeared in mostly supporting roles in a whole bunch of films for them. Probably her most notable work being a loan out to Hal Roach for a Rex the Horse movie, The Devil Horse, where she played the human female lead. It's easy to see why the Wampus may have thought that they had a promising young player on their hands. Could ride a horse, had the backing of her studio, okay reviews thus far, human female, what's not to like? It also must have helped that she had married Wampus member Arthur Q. Hagerman in 1926. Almost immediately after being named a Wampus baby star, Gladys, perhaps thinking that she had lots to offer, asked to be released from her Fox contract so that she could freelance. As a freelancer, she only did two productions in 1927, though one of those was with comedic actor Harry Langdon. I've mentioned Harry in a previous episode. He played a perennially childlike man, and was quite popular with silent film audiences. That said, by the time of the productions with Gladys as his leading lady, he did another with her in 1928, Harry's appeal had diminished significantly. It wasn't that either Three's a Crowd or The Chaser were bad productions, or that Gladys didn't acquit herself favorably in the roles. The Hollywood Vagabond, for example, said she was splendid and an ideally suited leading lady for Harry. But neither film was exactly a star maker for Gladys. She had ambitions to do more dramatic work, and soon landed a ten-episode serial called The Tiger's Shadow. It sounds very exciting. Titles included The Danger Trail, The Tiger's Claw, and A Desperate Chance. Daredevilish Pretty, said a headline in Motion Picture Classics' January 1929 issue. Those who like their cereals served hot and with peaches are looking forward every week to the appearance of Gladys McConnell in The Tiger's Shadow, wherein the villain still relentlessly and understandably pursues her. The idea that Gladys was a very exciting, daredevilly person very much had its roots in reality. She was an aviator. When she was a teenager, she began joyriding on rickety old army planes, as reported to Motion Picture, in a feature they called Modernized Menaces. Eventually, she took to riding in whatever light craft she could, and, in a fun bit of trivia, served the very first hot in-flight meal in 1928. It was breakfast. Screenland reported that Gladys was taking flying lessons and had chalked up more flying hours than almost anyone else in Hollywood. The new queen of cereals was how Motion Picture described her, and she followed up The Tiger's Shadow with the equally thrilling-sounding The Fire Detective in 1929. Titles included The Pit of Darkness, Back from Death, 
and the flame of love. Gladys had found a nice niche for herself, and was still appearing in supporting roles in other productions. She probably would have continued on like this quite happily, had what happened next not happened next. In the autumn of 1929, Gladys and her co-star from the Fire Detective series, Hugh Allen, were hired by a man named Eska Wilson, who, according to Variety, was the president of the Jefferson Hawaiian Films Company, to do four films on location in Honolulu. When they got there, Eska Wilson fucked off, abandoning Gladys and Hugh. There were no films to make, they got no salary. There's no indication that Gladys and Hugh had a place to stay or cash on hand even to feed themselves. They were stranded. Remember, and geez, Gladys would have known this all too well, 1929 was well before there were commercial flights in and out of Hawaii. Eventually, the pair did manage to make their way back to the mainland, but it was extremely stressful. They filed charges against Eska for violating California labor laws, since that's where they were hired, and won restitution, but the damage was really already done. Though each had a single project released in 1930, filmed before the debacle in Honolulu, both Gladys and Hugh left the film business after this incident. In 1931, Gladys married lawyer and later politician A. Ronald Button and had a family. She passed away in 1979, but I couldn't really find out too much about her later life. I hope she never lost that adventurous spirit of hers. The Wampus didn't get it right with Gladys McConnell, but she was on track to do some interesting things. Sadly, sometimes even with an adventurous spirit, getting stranded 2,000-odd miles from home is enough to fuck a person's plans right up. Francis Lee Bobby Vernon comedies will have six pitchers. Francis Lee, also from the Orpheum circuit, has been signed as Vernon's leading lady, reported Moving Picture World in their January 25, 1925 edition. The Orpheum Circuit was a chain of 45 vaudeville theaters in 36 cities across the United States. So though she was just around 20 or 21 when she arrived in Hollywood in the mid-1920s, Frances, born Myrna Phyllis Tibbetts in 1906, had seen her fair share of audiences already. She was signed by the Christie Company, infamous for promoting the young ladies in their employ based on their looks rather than much else. Frances was no exception. She was included, pictured wearing basically just a sheet, in a photoplay pictorial called Girls Who Are Good at Figures in their November 1925 issue. Ten beauties of Hollywood whose faces alone aren't their fortunes, they assure us. Not just pretty faces, don't worry, hot buds too! Frances spent all of 1925 and 1926 being the hot girl in a bunch of Christie comedy shorts. Hot girl paired with doofus is a trope as old as time, as evidenced by this snippet from Cinema Arts magazine. Another girl with a hard life is Frances Lee, for though she is only 19, the poor dear has had to stand for the peculiar husbands which movie comedies provide just as the other girls do. 
Mostly, Christy had continued to put Francis with Bobby Vernon, and his character wasn't the most doofusy of doofuses, but the fact remained that Francis wasn't given much to do beyond fall in love with the silly comedy hero who gets to have all the fun. Motion Picture News called her one of the charming decorative features of the Bobby Vernon Christie comedies, to give you a further taste of her place there. Luckily, one didn't need to bring much to the table beyond being attractive as far as the Wampus crew were concerned. Aside from when a feature borrowed her to play a babe in a skimpy costume, Frances stayed in the world of two real comedies, playing babes in skimpy costumes. It's not that she wasn't interested in more substantial work, but it just didn't seem to be in the cards. Frances Lee is the Christy piece de resistance, the sweetly decorative ornament of innumerable Bobby Vernon comedies. She is now in a series of two reelers called Confessions of a Chorus Girl, wrote Pitcher Play's December 1928 issue. In the piece called Beauty Takes the Bumps, they take time to tell a story of Frances falling on her ass, which left her with a painful distaste for chairs for a week. But mostly they talk about how this new project will prove once and for all that she has what it takes to make it big. But the series, which was an attempt at giggly, saucy fun, was also just terrible. A selection of notes from theater owners. A very poor two-reel comedy, said one. Not a laugh in the whole two reels of this. It will pass if you have nothing better. And the first of the confessions of a chorus girl I've had, and I wish it were the last. Other theater owners were a bit kinder, but one gets the impression that it was only a certain sort of crowd that enjoyed the series. It failed to make a star out of Frances. She continued on with small supporting roles and lots of two-reelers. Speaking of Christie comedies, there's little Frances Lee. Frances wants to go into dramatic roles and shake off all her slapstick trademark, Motion Picture reported in their April 1931 edition. So she's thinking of changing her name to her real one, Myrna Tibbetts. She was taking a test for the part of Gloria Swanson's sister the other day, and my bet is that because she is so unlike Gloria, she will get it. The other girl, who is taking a test for the same part, Joan Pierce, looks more like Gloria than Miss Swanson herself, so I'm mortally certain she won't get it. If that sounds like flawed logic to you, of course you're right. I think the film they are referring to might be 1931's Indiscreet. I have no clue who Joan Pierce was, but the part of Gloria Swanson's sister went to Frances's fellow 1927 baby star, Barbara Kent. Frances didn't go through with the readoption of her birth name, and she never was able to shake off her slapstick trademark. After a few more years of working very little, she officially retired in 1935. Always having more to offer than simply being resident eye candy, Frances went on to have quite the professional journey. As an educator, as an etiquette instructor, clients included Richard Nixon's daughters, apparently, and as a children's librarian. A very different life from the one that she had as a Christie Comedy's hot girl. Martha Sleeper Martha Sleeper was not yet 17 years old when she was named a Wampus Baby star. 
The daughter of a vaudeville theater chain executive, Martha accompanied her father to Hollywood when she was about 12 years old. She was quickly signed to Hal Roach's studio, where he put her in the Our Gang comedies in 1924. Martha Sleeper, 14 years old, is off to a flying start, reported Screenland in their April 1925 edition. The profile mostly talks up her comedic chops, though it also, very creepily, refers to her as a woman child and mentions her figure. It was decided that she was too mature for the Our Gang series, and so she spent the next couple of years playing leading lady in Hal Roach's comedy shorts opposite fully adult men like Charlie Chase, Glenn Tyron, and Oliver Hardy. These one and two reelers were popular, and in comparison to, for example, the Christie comedies that Frances Lee did so many of, the Roach studio wasn't trying to promote Martha purely on the merits of her appearance. She had personality, and they weren't afraid of showing it. Martha Sleeper lives up to anything but her last name. She is beautiful, talented, brilliant, said Pitcher Play's October 1926 issue. She writes as well as acts and is a dancer of unusual ability. Lately, she has taken the notion to write scenarios, and the Hal Roach studio folks are, altogether, mighty proud of her. They also noted that she was an excellent eccentric type, a sentiment echoed in motion picture news who called her an eccentric comedienne. This meant that not only were gags ever present in her films, as they should be, but also that from a publicity standpoint, Martha could have a little fun. She was photographed in silly poses, in unflattering swimming caps, falling into things. You catch my drift. Martha was getting quite a bit of buzz, especially, of course, with her inclusion on the Wampus list. But the nature of Hal Roach's operation meant that there were basically two paths for Martha, and both were limited to comedy shorts. One, there was continuing to support his male comedy bigwigs, or two, she could hope against hope that leading her own shorts was in the cards. Or, of course, there is a third option, and that's the one Martha chose. This exceptionally clever young lady will shortly sever her connections with the Roach Studios, where she has been under contract since she played her first part in the R Gang comedies, reported the Hollywood Vagabond in October 1927. Possessing exceptional histrionic talent and a marked ability to point her bits of business, Martha Sleeper's qualities are going to be a wonderful asset to her in feature-length pictures. While it is certain that her popularity would continue to grow its short reel comedies, Hollywood Vagabond believes that Martha Sleeper belongs in the big league. Her exuberant and snappy personality, combined with her ability to photograph like a million dollars, places her among the best bets of the season. Martha Sleeper, watch her! So she was off and free to sign with FBO for feature-length opportunities. Great! I sure hope they let her keep showing off her awesome personality and her publicity and don't just try to make a square peg fit in a round hole. Oh, FBO didn't really do that. That would imply that they gave her any publicity. She worked plenty with them, mostly in gritty, slightly ridiculous-sounding productions like Danger Street, 1928, and the Air Mail Propaganda movie, The Air Legion, 1929, but nothing that used her to her best advantage. In 1930, Martha signed with MGM and was put to work in a series of supporting roles, typically 
prim society ladies there as a foil to the more exciting leading lady. Again, nothing that used her vibrant personality or knack for comedy. Her film career hobbled along well into the 1930s, but more and more frequently Martha was finding better roles on stage. Probably her biggest role on screen was as Randolph Scott's wife in Broken Dreams, 1933, with the low-budget studio Monogram Pictures. Completely off-base rumors of a romance between Martha and Randolph were planted in the fan magazines to drum up interests. She married actor Hardy Albright not long after the film's release. Her film career was over by 1936, save for a favor to her old Hal Roach director Leo McCary when she appeared in his 1946 film The Bells of St. Mary's. Martha focused quite successfully on the stage, and also became a very sought-after jewelry designer. Her pieces had a truly whimsical flair, and you can sense her quirky personality shining through in each one. They are collector's items today, though, be forewarned, while most of the designs I saw were cute animals like owls and dogs and elephants, or quirky items like pencils and matchsticks and piggy banks, some of the designs that show up on Google fall into more racist imagery. I don't know the veracity of the Google images, and I'm no vintage jewelry expert, but just tread carefully if you're curious. Martha Sleeper never became a movie star, but she did carve out a creative career of her own making, one that allowed her true personality to shine through in a way that rarely happens in Hollywood. But were the Wampas right? No. That's it for the first batch of 1927 baby stars. Full of twists of fate that could happen to anyone and change everything. You might be struck down by illness, or stranded in Hawaii, or have been simply born the younger sister. Thank you for listening to the Old Movie Lady podcast. This is a labor of love, and if you've been enjoying it, find me on Instagram or my sad excuse for a TikTok at the Old Movie Lady. Write a review, leave a rating, and tell everybody that you can respectfully corner. I've been your host, Marg, the Old Movie Lady, an unholy mess of a girl.